I think we're going to war for real. I'll tell you one little story that I probably have never told anybody before. We got hit with a NVA sapper company supported by infantry. It's not easy and no, that one was tough, but fortunately it worked out for us. Welcome to War Stories, conversational military history. All right, what's going on, everyone? Preston Stewart and Sayer Payne from War Stories, joined today by Mr. Henry Hooper. Sir, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. So uh, Brian Walker from the Tennessee VFW uh, introduced us a couple weeks ago at an event in Collierville, which I'm still struggling to say correctly. Um, I think I got it that. Collierville? Collierville. 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 Okay. Yeah, Memphis. I wasn't confident in that. Yeah, just outside of Memphis. And... Um, Anyways, when, my, when Brian was making the introduction, he said, you got to talk to Mr. Hooper. And he described it as, as you having lived about six different full lives at this point. So you've an incredible background, uh, boxer, Marines, correct, for a little while? Yes. Army Special Forces, Secret Service. Um, I, I don't know where the conversation is going to take us today, but we're really excited to, to learn a little bit about your background. Well, you know, I've been blessed to do a lot of things and go a lot of places. Uh, and uh, I had some, some good experiences. And uh, I can't do nothing but today but sit back and enjoy the ride that I had. Mm. I like it. Uh, so been fun. has Memphis, has the Memphis area always been home? Is that where you grew up? Well, yeah, no, well, yes, Memphis is, is home. I, I actually, uh, my parents moved to Chicago when I was about two years old. Mm. And uh, uh, subsequently about, uh, when I was about eight, they got divorced and my mother brought, she packed up and moved her kids and her seven kids to Memphis. And I'm, so I'm one of the, I'm the oldest. So we went, we went back to Memphis and that's where I, I grew up until I was, uh, got this big idea that uh, I wanted to go into the military. And then, so what years are we talking about, Henry? Like, um, like when you were growing up, like what year were you born? And I was born, I was born in 1939. Hmm. 1939, back in the days of, uh, of uh, segregation. Mm -hmm. Here in the South, um, in Chicago, I was, uh, I grew up in a uh, sort of mixed neighborhood. You know, there were Puerto Ricans, there were Italians, there were everybody. We were, you know, we were just kids. Mm -hmm. We played and got along. And so when I uh, was brought to Memphis, it was a, a, a culture shock uh, because mm. I, you know, Everybody was one and the same as far as I was concerned. And uh, so I was set down by my grandmother and, and explained to me the difference in Chicago and Memphis. And, and uh, the segregated days and, you know, she was very wise and she, you know, she made sure that I was aware that I was no, no different from anybody else. I was no less than anybody else, regardless of color, regardless of what anyone said. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, people are people. And if you treat them right, uh, they'll treat you right, uh, whether they like it or not. You just have to, uh, you know, think before you, before you speak, and you'll be okay. And that's, and that's how I, I managed, you know. Uh, uh, and so uh, it was, it was a little difficult for some people, but I really uh, embrace what uh, was before me and uh, accepted it and uh, moved forward. I knew that nobody was any better than I was. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, and so I just, uh, if they tried to indicate that I was, I, you know, I just looked at them like they were crazy. Uh, I, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't uh, I never admit that I was uh, inferior to anyone. Mm. Did you, were you old enough to, um, I guess, appreciate the fact of the differences between Chicago and Memphis and maybe think about moving back to an area that was different? No, no, it never, it never, that never crossed, that never crossed my mind. You know, um, that was, uh, you know, I was, <clears throat> you know, I was eight years old. So I was, I was brought back here um, by my mother and uh, enrolled in the schools. Uh, and, and that was it. You know, interesting thing that occurred to me, I, I, I got I got hurt, um, and so I was uh, in my inguinal region. Uh, I had a little fractured bone there, and um, really uh, at a at a hospital, the city of Memphis hospital. There was a young white nurse there that uh, you know she kind of took a liking to me. I first my little kid, and uh, she was just a nurse. She just who happened to be white, and uh, but she was kind, you know. Uh, she treated me well, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, and so I took a liking to her, and, and she did me bring me little gifts and stuff. There was nothing there other than the fact that he was a young kid that was in a hospital, riding around in the hospital in a wheelchair, and I was there for about three and a half, four months. Wow. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, so we, we had a good relationship then. And so um, I say this because, because coming from Chicago, you know, I uh, recognize people for, for their, their kindness or whoever they were. And she was kind to me, and so I didn't take it any, any other way, and didn't look at it any any other way, other than the fact that this was a nice person, who uh, uh, sort of took me in more or less, and uh, and so from from that point on, uh, you know, I just that's the way I, I treated everybody else, you know, unless you showed me something different, and. Uh, uh, from the, from the beginning, you just uh, a nice person. You'd mentioned your grandmother kind of sitting you down and having the talk of how things are different in Memphis. As the oldest of seven, did you serve in that same capacity for your young, your younger siblings as they kind of came of age explaining um, um, 
your mindset, if you will. We were we were really close in age, most of us. You know, I'm I'm a I'm a year younger than my next my brother and my sister. Uh, they were we were about a year apart, uh, with the exception of uh, after the first three of us uh, kind of separated two or three years, and so it, it was me. Uh, but the other ones were kind of young, and so uh, I left home. At, you know, I I joined the Marines on uh, four days after my 17th birthday. Oh wow! Ready to go. Ready to go. I, you know, I just I just saw I never forget this movie Battle Cry. And uh, uh, so I it was a World War II movie. So I I watched it and and it. They had a they had a couple they had a couple some black guys there they were but they were um, stewards you know they took care of their commanding officers uniforms and shoes and all that stuff they were they were sharp good looking guys uh, but it was just that their jobs were but uh, but that was not what impressed me it was the fact that uh, it was the Marine Corps itself mm. you know the uh, the spirit of core, the um, uh, the discipline, the uh, our comrade, uh, the camaraderie, the uh, uh, you know they were they were they were tough, uh, and so that's those were the things that impressed impressed me. Henry, did you have any um, family members that um, served in the military at all, or is this all yeah, sort of from the I movies? Had, uh, I had, I had, I had, I had two. My mother's brothers both served in the army. Because um, uh, I, I remember uh, uh, them coming home in uniform and from Korea. Oh yeah. And so, uh, and then I think, I think one of my, I think one, of my granddad served in World War Two. And in what capacity, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I didn't find that out until years later. Mm. So Korea, you would have been what a teenager? No, Korea. I was no. I was that was that was that that was before. I would have been probably oh twelve, thirteen. Okay. Fourteen. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So you remember it? I'm sure you remember the war itself. Yeah, I remember World War Two. Do you? uh, When it was over. I was uh, a, a little guy, probably maybe five or six, but I could I could remember the the celebration, the horns blowing, and everybody else that the war was over. I didn't know what, was, what they were talking about in the war, but uh, <laughs> I knew that there was a lot something big that had just happened. Yeah. Was the Marine Corps when you joined Henry? It was fully fully desegregated at that point. Okay. Yes, it was. It was. It was. It was. uh, At that time, it it was integrated. uh, This was 1956. wasn't too long before. Right. uh, Because the 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 schools, high schools, and all they were still segregated. But the but the military was was integrated, and uh, but that really was not much of uh, any any kind of confrontation in 
in the Marine Corps uh, as far as uh, boot camp and stuff between the races and everything. Now, I had I had a guy from Nashville, was a white white guy who really didn't like me, uh, and because I was tall and skinny kid, I went in the Marine Corps. I was about six one, weighed about one hundred and forty pounds. I'll never forget that guy to this day. His name was Phil Cox. And he used to try and push me around. Well, there were six guys from Memphis, uh, black guys that went in the Marine Corps same day we all were. And, uh, you know, don't let this guy push you around. We got you back. And uh, finally, I had enough of Phil Cox, and I, I cleaned his clock. <laughs> And, uh, but he was persistent. I whoop him every day. And uh, I think until we graduated, he still was he, didn't. Was he, he, still a, didn't. he wasn't a drill sergeant. He was one of the no, recruits. He was just another recruit. What he a was jerk. just another guy, just another recruit. And, uh, uh, he, was, and he was from Nashville. And uh, I don't know whatever happened to him. I never saw him again after boot camp. But uh, uh, that was the only problem I ever had. Uh, and but our confrontation really wasn't about it wasn't about race. You know, he was uh, he probably was an old redneck, but he didn't. Uh, but he didn't make any racial slurs or anything. He mm. just didn't. He felt that I was an easy prey. Yeah. Now, I was, we talked about boxing and stuff. See, I started boxing when I was about, uh, and I, right after I got to Memphis. You know, Memphis was a big town for on boxing. Uh, matter of fact, it was a, it was a, uh, one of the sports in, in high school. You could, you know, I could oh, wow. basketball, baseball, boxing. And uh, so I learned, I used to watch Joe Lewis and, Sugar Ray Robinson and all these guys on TV, Willie Pep, uh, you know, on the black and white TV at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so I uh, really uh, uh, was pretty skillful for someone uh, at, that, at that younger age. And so I could fight. Uh, and these, uh, this guy just didn't know it until he... Uh, he, so we got into a little scuffle, and then he, uh, but he just still wouldn't quit. I feel I like that would make me quit. Find out that you're <laughs> you're picking on a boxer. I guess he was a Marine after all, then, because he kept going after you after getting his butt kicked. You know, he just wouldn't yeah. stop. <laughs> I think he would have learned his lesson. And you can't. Okay, we can't open up about the can't talk about boxing without mentioning that boxing sort of career. I guess you had, and that would have been before the Marines, right? No, that was uh, you know, I was I was this was in I was I was in boot camp, uh, you know, um, and I was in I was I was in Marines. I didn't I didn't do you didn't do you know, there's no boxing there. It wasn't until I, actually I got out of I graduated from boot camp, and uh, I was assigned to a unit, and uh, I think. Probably the first time that I got involved in boxing was I was actually stationed in Japan. Mm. And uh, uh, I was actually 
going to a, uh, I was studying judo downtown in a little village. And uh, in Japan, in Japan. Wow. And uh, uh, somehow uh, I was playing around in the barracks with guys and we, we got the guys, you know, guys scuffling, playing around and shadow boxing. And uh, uh, so I was tapping a guy and moving around, punching him, uh, jabbing him, so forth. And uh, and one of the uh, guys who was was actually on a they had a marine boxing team over there said you need to try for the boxing team over here you know and so that's uh, really the first time that I uh, realized that I could box and as a result of that uh, I did make the post boxing team and uh, travel all over Japan on the Marine team, uh, boxing guys in the Army, Navy, Air Force, so forth. Did you ever have any, did, when you were growing up watching the boxing matches on TV, was that something you thought about doing or did it just kind of happen to work out? No, I, well, I always loved boxing, uh, as a small, small kid. And that was one of the things that, uh, uh, my grandmother would allow me to on Wednesdays, Wednesday night, I think it was a Pabst Blue Ribbon fights on Friday and, and Gillette Blue Blade on Wednesday nights. There we go. And she allowed me to sit with her and uh, sit by the uh, TV and watch the boxing. And I would, uh, uh, I knew all the fighters, you know, during that, during that area, you know, Walcott and Mar Marciano and all those others. Mm -hmm. And so, and I, I picked up a lot of, I mimicked everything that I could get from it through the TV. And so when I actually got my, my first amateur fight, people thought I had been boxing so for some time because my skill level was, was, was much better than uh, the average novice boxer. Mm. When you were boxing with the Marines, did that take, well, what was your Marine job? And then did the boxing take precedence over that once you got involved? Uh, no, it did not take precedence. My, my, actually, I was a, that's a long story. Let me go back because when I, uh, you know, go back to boot camp, uh, you know, when they, this, this, they brought me in this, this captain, they, I was in this room and they were trying to decide what, what's going to be my MOS. And, uh, this captain says, uh, Robert Hooper, you uh, have a high IQ. I, I think you make an excellent steward. Well, I don't think he knew I knew what a steward was. <laughs> it was called the Balakrai, that movie, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and this black guy, I said, sir, I didn't join the Marine Corps to be anybody's blue black, boo black. And he looked at me kind of funny, and he said, get out. Get out of my office. He put me out. He never told me what, what my MOS was going to be other than that, no. so I didn't know. Yeah. Until I, until I got orders, and they sent me to uh, aviation prep school, Jacksonville, Florida. Mm. A Naval Air Technical Training Center. And I went down there, and, uh, you know, uh, 
I told you I joined the Marines when I was four days after my 17th birthday. Well, I had not finished high school. I had passed to the 12th grade. And uh, I promised, my mother made me promise that I would finish school, high school while I was in the Corps. And I had, you know, gone over this with the drill instructor. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, you can finish while, you, while, you, while you're in the Marines. And so uh, she accepted that and signed my papers. That's how I got in. But anyway, I was, I, they sent me to aviation prep school in Jacksonville, Florida. So I was like, I was back in school. I was taking physics and algebra and trig and all that stuff. Uh, and then the, uh, plus aviation uh, uh, material. Um, and I subsequently became an aircraft jet mechanic. Whoa. And that's what I, that's, that was my, that was my job in the Marine Corps. Mm. Uh, I did one day, I did uh, see some guys on the flight line and these camouflage fatigue. And I made an inquiry. Uh, I said, who are those guys? Well, that, that's Force Recon. Uh, what do they do? Well, that's a special unit. And uh, uh, but you're in aviation, you wouldn't, you wouldn't qualify. And that's, that's what the uh, uh, non-commissioned officer in charge of the machine shop that I was, where I was working at, at the flight line told me. Sure. So they sort of brushed me off. Mm. And uh, so these guys were, I, I, you know, they were all, or they, but don't, there weren't any black guys in the group or the ones that I saw. So I just sort of uh, let it pass. And uh, I played, I was playing sports. Uh, even though I was in the shop with aircraft, jet mechanic, passed all my school, did well, made good grades. It was, and it was not, uh, but that was, that was me, maybe one other, African-American aircraft jet mechanic. So even though there was, uh, this was not segregation, there was, there was some bias. Mm. That's sure. what I was going to ask. Uh, there yeah. were things that were going on that, you know, you know, yeah, I would get evaluations I never knew about until like, years later after I got out of out of the Marine Corps, and I looked at my pulled my personnel file. Did I see the kind of evaluations that I had? Yet when I talked to my the officer in charge, I was a great guy, uh, did well. Although um, uh, uh, you know they kind of shuffled me around there, didn't do much. So I ended up uh, while I was in Japan, I played football. Played basketball mm. and box. And this was kind of between wars, if you will. This was after oh, Korea yeah. and before oh, things yeah. have ramped up in Vietnam. War. Yes. And so uh, uh, it was, 
you know, I just, I just roll with. There's nothing, nothing you can do in those situations. Uh, I was, a, I was a pretty good athlete, and so uh, uh, they were glad to get me to, to play sports, but they didn't necessarily uh, uh, do anything for me as far as uh, learning my skills that I went to school for, uh, improving it. Uh, as an aircraft jet mechanic. And if I ever had any fault of, of, of my, of the Marine Corps was the fact that we had some bigots there that really didn't do their job because they had a, they had a willing and uh, student, uh, a young man that really could have, uh, they could have helped, but, mm. they, but they really didn't. And so, um, I played sports. Uh, like I said, I was I was good at at most, and I came back to the states to Cherry Point, North Carolina, and uh, got on their boxing team, and was subsequently transferred uh, because of my skill level to the Marine Corps boxing team. All right. Oh which was at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. And that's where I, uh, uh, I fought, fought at the uh, inter service tournament with the uh, uh, inter service tournament. I fought at, let's see, it was at uh, Bowling Air Force Base. Matter of fact, my, one of my opponents there was Bob, Bob Foster. Lost a split decision to Bob. Bob later on uh, became the light heavyweight champion of the world. It's pretty serious. Yeah. Yeah. So he was, uh, Bob was, Bob was very, very well. I never had a chance to see any of those guys. Uh, uh, and then later on, uh, of course, uh, right after that, uh, a month or two later, I went to, uh, San Francisco with the Marine team uh, after training uh, at Marine Corps Recruit Depot at San Diego. We went to uh, the Cow Palace in San Francisco for the Olympic trials, the 1960 Olympics. So you were still on the Marine team when you went out there to California? That's right. Yeah. Okay. To train as an amateur for a slot on the Olympic team. That's right. Mm. Okay. That was... Um, now that was one of my ambition was to try to make the Olympic team. You know, uh, Olympic was uh, it's always a big deal with me. Uh, you know, I uh, I follow it from then up until to now. People wonder about the Olympics. Well, was, you know, those kids, those guys and gals, they put in a lot of time. Mm-hmm. At that skill level, it's it's required. You know, other countries, uh, they're really, many of their athletes are professionals. They pay them, they train them, they house them for years until the Olympics comes around. And so they have a chance to, uh, uh, to come and fight or, or participate in an event. And they are, they're, so they're all good. So I, I always respect that. Uh, Olympians, regardless of what sport mm-hmm. it is. I agree. 
Did and, you think uh, that you had, when you were out there in 1960, did you think that you had a real chance of making the Olympics? Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I didn't, uh, uh, I didn't, I didn't fear anybody. I didn't know anybody uh, other than uh, you were just another boxer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the same way, it's the same applies that when, before we got to the Olympic trials, you know, we had to, you had to be one of the uh, eight national champions to even qualify to be there. You either had to be the Marine champion, Air Force, Army, or Navy champion, national collegiate champion, uh, national AAU champion, or Golden Glove champion. Um, I may have left out one of them, but those you had to fall in that in the, one of those categories wow. to be able to qualify. And so uh, I was a Marine. I was a, I was on the Marine team, and um, the difference was though uh, the coach he tried and put people uh, that he felt he had the had the best chance to win. I was, I was, I fought out of my weight class. I was actually a middleweight, 160 pounds. But uh, he was trying to balance the team out. And so I ended up fighting uh, heavyweight. Oh. I weighed in with an overcoat on. Oh, that definitely matters. Weight class matters for sure. It, it, it matters. And so, uh, but see, I, it, Prior to that, I had, because I couldn't get fights in a lot of places. So I fought middleweight, light heavyweight, heavyweight mm. before the Olympic trials. And I was, I, I beat everybody. Yeah. Is there a benefit to that, do you think? Um, as opposed to always going against your same weight class? Did you, do you think you uh, learned more? No. Okay. No, the, the, only, the only benefit is to the team. Gotcha. Mm. You know, uh, we were trying to put the best team together sure and uh the best fighters in a weight class we may have had a guy that was uh if you look at the uh, if the opposing team and their middleweight uh was not as uh as good as as our middleweight you put him there but if you had somebody else that was uh if they had a better middleweight and your heavy, your middleweight was uh, was was better than that guy. Then he let him fight. But sometimes, because of I was my skill level, I was better than the light heavyweight. Sure. And we had a, a middleweight who could compete with their middleweight. So I moved up to fight, and I won. And I got now, and our other guy, middleweight won. And so that's how it was, things were juggled around a little bit. And that's what happened to me in the uh, trials. Probably oh, if I had been fighting my regular weight class, I, I would have had a better chance to make it. Probably, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but I was, you know, listen to my coach. Sure. And so, um, uh, and that's how I ended up uh, meeting my opponents. Bigger, stronger, a little bit. Uh, I don't think that they were any skill, any better skill than I was. Uh, but 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 that's it. 
you know, when you're boxing, 10, 15 pounds, 20 pounds, you make a big difference. Mm. And what was the weight difference there in, in kind of your big fight in, in San Francisco? Uh, probably about 10, 15 pounds. And, um, well, yeah, the reach, all that I, stuff. When I fought that, when Cassius Clay, uh, he was, he was heavier. He was, he was, he was probably he, a light heavyweight, uh, at the bottom at the top end of light, you know, a light heavyweight. And, and uh, I have a quick question. Was he, does he famous in 1960 yet? Or is this what made him was, famous? No, he was famous in, uh, uh, in the amateur circle. Okay. He was beating everybody then. Right. But uh, I was sort of unknown to him. But Cassius and I actually had similar boxing styles. We were about the same size almost, other than he was a little, a little heavier. Uh, but uh, uh, his skill level wasn't any better than mine. Better than mine. Hmm. And so, uh, uh, that's the way it was. I just, you know, Kansas later on, uh, you know, he uh, he got to be known more about his talk talking to people and, and his lip when he became a professional. Right. You know, he did a little bit of that as a as an amateur, but not not as much as because you know, I got a notoriety and uh uh, the people loved it. And so it just sort of edged him on to do that stuff. But he never, sure. he didn't, uh, uh, you know, he heard about my fight with Bob Foster. So he wasn't going to be uh, mouthing off with me. Mm. And so, um, uh, but anyway, uh, we, had, we had a good fight. Uh, I, made, I made a dumb mistake that, uh, Anybody was experienced, you know. You never take your eye off off your opponent. And we were in a clinch, and the referee was said something, and I glanced at the referee. And, um, and while you're in a clinch, you're supposed to have a mandatory step back, one step back. And well, Cassius didn't step back; he just rocked back. He rocked right in my jaw, mm. and I went down. <laughs> I popped back back up. And the uh, referee, you know, pulled my gloves, pulled his gloves together. And I guess he's trying to see if I was okay. I said, oh, I'm fine. Then he turned around and waved, gave him a TQ. And we were only awarded him the decision, a technical knockout. And according to all of the pundits and the, and, the, and the media there, the fight was a draw up to that point. And so uh, Cassius went on to, to Rome and I always say got my gold medal. <laughs> when did he change his name to Muhammad Ali? Was when that much later? Is, yeah, is that the right is that the right way to say it? Change his name. He changed, yeah. he changed his name to Muhammad Ali. Yeah. Was was that much later? Yeah, much later. Yeah. And uh, you know, I I I followed of course followed the Olympics after that. Because at this time, I you know I knew I knew all the guys on the teams, uh, and then uh, uh, 
later on. I, then I got out of the Marine Corps after the, after the, uh, the Olympic trials. Okay. Oh, so that was kind of last. Okay, I can get it now. The boxing yeah. did sort of take over at the very end, and then and you, I guess, decided not to reenlist. No, I decided not to reenlist in the Marine Corps. And you know, so, the, what was the plan then? You know, you're getting out. You had the boxing behind you. You had the aircraft mechanic trade, I guess, right? You you got those certifications. Yeah, but, but, but see, I came back. I came back to Memphis, and uh, I, I, it was difficult to get it. To get a job, I got a job at a local hospital, mm -hmm. the maintenance department, cleaning floors, things like this. And this was some access. Hey, I can do better in the military. Mm. So uh, I went in the army. First, I was going to go back to the Marine Corps, but they wanted me to reenlist for six years. And I said no. Wait. <laughs> went to the Air Force, and they wanted to send me to electronic school, Luxor, Mississippi. I said, no way. Well, I, I don't like electronics, and I'm certainly not going to Mississippi. That's so I went, to, I went to the Army, and they uh, sent me to uh, Fort Leonard Missouri for about a month for reach reclassification. And I left there and went to uh, Fort Knox, Kentucky. They sent me there to the military police detachment. Gotcha. And I uh, was there until uh, for about six months when I got orders to go to uh, uh, Fort Ritchie, Maryland, up the Catoctin Mountains outside of Washington, D.C. I don't think I've ever heard of it. Yeah, well, most folks haven't. Uh, it's, it's an area where uh, uh, it's a, a classified facility. And I, I was there and then uh, one of the, I guess it was the Stars and Stripes, had an article in there. The Army was uh, was increasing the size of the uh, this this special unit called Green Berets, and uh, President Kennedy had just awarded them the wearing of the Green Berets, hmm. and so they asked him for volunteers, and so I volunteered. And uh, for selection, well, um, they sent me, I went to Bragg. Mm -hmm. And what year, back. what year did you remember reading the article? And then when did you start actually going to Bragg and everything? 1961. Wow. Out of 61, I think. Yeah. And um, uh, they sent me there to, to a training group. I was not airborne qualified, and uh, and I was come from the Marine Corps, and so uh, before I had start selection, I had to go through jump school, and the uh, I was not a favorite child, having come from the Marine Corps, and also uh, in the selection process for special forces, so any infraction violation of any kind, it was triple Oof. the number of push-ups that you had to do. Ten for because you were uh, coming from, for because you goofed up. Ten because you were a Marine. Ten because you came from Special Forces Training Group. Wow. 
And that lasted until uh, I graduated. Makes you stronger, I guess, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I was prepared anyway. We had a big, big Marine sergeant there. I'm not a Marine sergeant, but a big sergeant, special force that had all of the non-qual, all the trainees and ran us all over Smoke Bomb Hill at Fort Bragg. And uh, that was an area where the uh, Special Forces uh, barracks uh, were and the 82nd Airborne were located at, at Bragg. And this guy, he got us in shape. So when I got to jump school, I was, I was in excellent shape anyway. Mm. So uh, uh, completed jump school and then I uh, went to uh, uh, started selection process and uh, went through the phase first, second phase and always sent me to uh, 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 SF medic school. All right. Did you choose that or did they decide that for you? No, I, I chose it. Uh, wasn't so sure. I looked at all the others. Uh, uh, they sort of made recommendations where you, where you should, where they want to put you, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and a lot of it had to do with test scores and things like this. And so, uh, I said, yeah, I'll, I'll take it because I was, I was kind of leaning towards uh, light weapons or uh, engineering, but uh, mm -hmm. so I ended up going through uh, SF medic school seminar in the port Sam Houston, Texas and, and San Antonio. Not a bad place. No, not, about, not at all. How long was that training from, uh, when you grad from finishing airborne school all the way through your medic training, is that a year? Uh, uh, no, it was probably about uh, a year and a half, probably, or, or close, more closer to two. It's a lot for, for the SF medics because after uh, you go through the, all your training, your schools down there uh, uh, at, at Fort Sam. Then you uh, spend, uh, oh, let's see, 20 weeks on OJT at the hospital. And then you come back to Fort Bragg for the surgical research lab, which is another, uh, that's where you learn all your surgery and stuff. That's another four weeks or more. Uh, and once you finish that, then you go through your final phase of, 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 of SF training. And after that, uh, you get you. Uh, if you pass all that, then you get your you get chance opportunity. Then you get your green beret. Was that Robin Sage? Do you remember? Yeah. Is that what that was? The last, the very yeah, like the mock up yeah. where you had like a, a gorilla and all. You had to train a G chief and all that gorilla chief. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow, man, they designed it. It's interesting to really think how. It seems to have been, it still seems to be the same, right? Neither one of us were special forces, um, yeah, but like it's still, they've really preserved it. Yeah, they have a lot of the, uh, uh, the cadre there are all former guys. They were Vietnam vets. Um, they a lot of experience. Special forces, one thing they do is they, they take advantage of, of everybody that their skill set. 
and uh, mm. develop it, and they, they pass on a lot of it mm. to the guys. And uh, and then, two uh, guys spend a lot of time mentoring other guys in the uh, in the in SF. You know, mm -hmm. once you get there, you don't, you know, you, you're still in a learning process uh, uh, with with your teammates. Somebody will pull you aside and help you along and, and teach you or show you some things. Uh, so it was, uh, it's, you're constantly, constantly being, constantly training. Sure. You mentioned that a lot of the uh, cadre had been in Vietnam. This was very early in that conflict. So oh, yeah. did you guys know when you're going through that training that your likely destination would be Vietnam? Um, no. Hmm. No, we, we didn't. We really didn't. You, you really didn't think about it. You know, it was, uh, uh, you know, at that time, we, of course, it had, uh, They had an association with other foreign governments. And uh, I can give an example. In Burma, we, we had teams sit there for training. We uh, spent time training with the British SAS. Uh, and so there was it's a lot of, because, you know, Space Force was relatively, well, it was relatively new to the public because, mm -hmm. you know, we, we had guys in Vietnam in 1959. Uh, but with the expansion, where a lot of people that needed to be get trained, and so they were reaching out to various countries, you know. Mm. Um, that so was definitely was, that era, wasn't it? I mean, it really was. I mean, that was that active domino theory and all of that. And I guess you guys were the proactive element to train and and just get these governments established in sort of the American or the democratic way of things? Well, a lot of it wasn't really wasn't because of that. It was because they were involved in, uh, in some guerrilla warfare in some of these places and the British were there. And so uh, these were things that we were learning to, uh, uh, we were really basically trying to, uh, uh, get our, our troops trained uh, and give them some, and improve our skill level uh, as much as the, uh, uh, as well as the, the Brits and, and the Australians, mm. the people that, that were involved in, in, in things, these things before we were. Sure. And so we, we they, they were, they were good at this. And, uh, and so we went, uh, SF sent people there to, to learn dissolve so we can improve our skill level and get more people uh, to be, be able to better perform in, in situations like that when, it, when our time came. Sure. I guess what I'm thinking is it's a heavy, again, of course, I wasn't born yet, but me thinking of the timeline, it seems like a, a, a heavy anti-communist time frame with American ideals and foreign policy. I mean, just just constant that threat of Soviet expansion, not necessarily like maybe later on, the nuclear thing was always on the table, sure, but I feel like 
in this area of the 50s and 60s, it's almost like everyone's putting a new footprint on these new uh, developing countries and whatnot. Well, that, 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 that's true. There, there was some, uh, uh, a lot of that, and that's why we were, we were there. But uh, most of the biggest thing was that we were, we were, there, we were there to learn mm -hmm. from them. Uh, and so when we went to Vietnam, many of our, many of our guys uh, had some combat experience, hmm. having been at these other places and participated. Mm -hmm. You know, we didn't go there as a, as a unit to fight, but selectively we went there to learn uh, how to operate in those environments. So how, what was the timeline from when you, I mean, you graduated, obviously you got the Green Beret, you show up at um, group, which, which group was it again? I was, I was in the seventh. I was in the seventh. seventh. Yeah. And then after that, uh, uh, I was, I was sent to, after I graduated, I was only, I was on the seventh for, for, for probably a very short period of time. I, I was sent to the first. Mm. First group in Okinawa at that time. Back to Japan. Yeah. And then uh, uh, from there to uh, Vietnam. What yeah. was the time frame on that then from showing up in o Okinawa to then going to Vietnam? Oh, probably this was probably 1963. 1963 was um, uh, Vietnam. And um, majority of special forces uh going to Vietnam at that time was 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 through the uh through the first first group makes sense they're they're closest right they're they're closest and uh every, everybody that was uh, uh uh had any combat experience they got it from through the from coming through the first mm. and uh it was a little different. Uh, we were doing a pretty good job there, uh, so much so that we had uh, we had bounties on our heads. No, uh -oh. by by Viet Cong. Oh yeah, big bounties. Uh, was, that was the enemy. It was uh, Viet Cong, not NVA. Yeah, primarily Viet, at that time it was mostly. Uh, well, they were both. Mm -hmm. Both uh, Viet Cong and the NBA, but uh, 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 the NBA had uh, better trained troops. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, uh, Viet Cong were more uh, guerrilla, right? Type units. Yeah. When when you say bounties on your heads by the by the Viet Cong. Do you mean to the degree of having names or descriptions of individuals or more just for the Americans in that area? Americans in that area, and especially, and especially special forces. What's that? The only other Americans that were, in, that were, with, that were there uh, affiliated with a combat unit were some military advisors. Maybe How's... advisors to a, a uh, Vietnamese uh, battalion or company. And uh, or a ranger company. 
How well, most, uh, we were the only combat, primarily the only combat troops there. And personally, I I felt that really that's all we needed. They were doing fine, hmm. uh, you know, uh, and take care of their 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 country. Uh, but see, you, you have to look. There was a big space between the Korean War, Vietnam. There was no combat mm -hmm. units. No, the officers didn't have any experience in combat. So everybody's looking out to. Uh, they want to. They want to get an opportunity to lead in the combat. And That's so as a result, we we a lot of folks were sent to in my opinion, sent to Vietnam right. that they need to be there. Well, I think that's been a thing throughout history. You know, there's a yeah. war kicks off. People need to get their rotation through a war so they can get promoted, so they can get that experience. Right. And um, I, I don't mean that to say that it's a good thing or the right thing, but I think that's, I think you're spot on, Henry. Um, what, what, what happened, yeah. What were you guys doing there? What was your job when you were in Vietnam, <laughs> your team's job? Well, of course, my job, uh, uh, well, we were trying to root out the, uh, the uh, Viet Cong. Uh, and, uh, you know, they were heavily involved in communism over there. And we were uh, trying to really make sure that uh, uh, the areas that we were, where the teams were, we were free of uh, Viet Cong and North Vietnamese. Uh, of course, their 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 efforts were to to, to bring everybody on the communism, mm -hmm. and so uh, uh, that's what we did primarily was to, was to make sure. Now, as as an individual medic, my job was to uh, take care of my team first. Uh, if you got wounded, uh, I was the guy that took care of you. As long as it didn't involve wounds of the head or the abdomen, I took care of everything. I did, I did the surgery, I did the uh, diagnosis and treatment. Same way with the villagers. I trained village health workers. I took the, the brightest young person from a village and, and taught them emergency medicine, emergency first aid. Um, <clears throat> and then I, um, uh, would hold sick calls at all the neighboring villages uh, about twice a day. Twice a day? Yeah. In the morning and in, in the evenings. And, uh, you know, I, I go out, I treat everybody. You didn't mm -hmm. know who you were treating. You know, we probably had VC sneaked in there. I'm sure. Because you, have, you, always, had, you always had sympathizers within villages. You know, they've, they're your enemy at nighttime. They're the farmer at the day, during the day. You didn't know who they were. Uh, you try and get uh, through your intelligence and through the Vietnamese, identify who the bad guys were in, in neighboring villages, but uh, you couldn't always count on that. It makes you wonder if, you know, you're right. If instead of resorting later to the napalm and the agent orange and the just bombing and killing later, if 
they stuck to that and just expanded because it just, to me, that's, that, that is the hearts and minds, right? That is how you win it over. I feel like, I think, cause I, th- not that we won him over in Afghanistan either, but I, you know, I know our medics treated Taliban guys that got blown up setting in an IED probably, um, but you still treat them. And I do think that in the long term that that stuff will pay off. They'll see it. They don't see you as a devil anymore. Um, you see each other as humans for one thing. I think that's also important yeah. and it's hard to do in war. It is. And, you know, I think uh, uh, probably one of the, one of the reasons I, I survived Vietnam was because I did treat everybody. And, uh, uh, you know, my job was to go out there and, uh, uh, you know, if, if it was a VC and it was known and I'd have to handle him, uh, him or her appropriately, but my first job was to give him first aid and mm-hmm. take care of the wounds. And so uh, I remember we, uh, uh, we, call, we captured the, the guy and uh, doing the interrogation, he says, oh yeah, we see, we see him all the time. Because he talking about you? Oh yeah, talking about me. And uh, I, just, I just laughed because uh, he probably did. And I would, you know, if we had a firefight at a village, that night, uh, the next morning, I'd hop on a jeep, and two or three of the medics would hop on there with me with our weapons, and we'd go to the village to assess what the damage were and uh, treat any wounded. And uh, if you, you had know, to evacuate, if you had to evacuate somebody for a procedure that you couldn't do yourself, how far away was that, or what was the timeline to get somebody out of there? Well, it. Uh, very, very, there was very little time where I had to evacuate somebody. Uh, I remember one time I had to get a lady who was uh, having a baby. Baby was positioned wrong when I was doing an examination. And uh, I was going to get her out. Uh, but it was at nighttime, and we had to wait till the next day. But uh, the, uh, the sad part was that, uh, I, one, I could not get a feel a heartbeat. And uh, the next morning, I, I got to the, the camp early to try to get evacuation out of there. And she was already, uh, they had already buried her. Wow. She had a died of septicemia. The baby was dead. Guy was infected. And... Uh, I suspected that, but I uh, didn't know. Uh, and I would say if, depending on like any, any firefight, uh, if you can get, uh, depending on what, what the hostile situation was, if you can get a chopper in and get somebody out, you get them in and out as soon as you can. So the response was really not much more, unless it was probably a little less than what you have today, uh, you know, we don't have we don't have the field hospitals like you had there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, you know, your medics did what they could, and then you uh, then you got them out when you could when you can get a chopper in there. Depending on the weather conditions, you know, we're in uh, uh, <laughs> uh, 
uh, monsoon seasons. You know, uh, it's, it's not the desert. So, it's the jungle and the mountains. So you're doing uh, everything. You're delivering babies. You were like conducting surgery, like to that degree. Oh, yeah. No yeah. kidding. Wow. Yeah. I, I feel mean, like a lot of people don't know the, even in the army itself, how well experienced, how much knowledge a SF medic has and like the, and, and like all the things that they're able to do and, and do do and administer. And I, I guess I did Robin Sage as a cadet or whatever. It was just three weeks. I played a gorilla, but it was a lot of exposure working with those guys. Cause like the cadre member was a medic and I got a lot of time. Like I, I basically camped out for a week with this guy essentially. And he was like 25 year veteran. And um, I just had no idea I mean, they're like PAs plus. I mean, I, they're almost like doctors, I feel like. Um, I did everything it's incredible. That, yeah. I did everything. We do every, everything that a, that a general practitioner can do, um, which includes um, uh, delivering babies, uh, extracting teeth. You know, at dentistry, I put temporary fillings in. I extract, I pull the teeth. Of course, in Vietnam, uh, these guys and yells, uh, they uh, chewed betel nut tobacco and stuff. So the teeth were rotten down to the roots. So you, the only thing you did is you just pull them. Uh, you know, I was taught uh, obstetrics, dermatology, orthopedics. Um, Dentistry, uh, vet medicine, because you remember Why not? that those animals are uh, that's their livelihood. You know they they, they oh, depend. Oh yeah, on them. yeah. So you you have to know how to how to treat the animals also, and uh, uh, so it was very very important. That, you know, yeah. yeah, titrate it, medicine, narcotics, and med you know actual hard drug you know chemicals essentially. You know, able to administer and titrate that. I also had I had my own I had my own lab kit. I could do my own stains and things like this. I had a portable a portable um, uh, X-ray machine and stuff like this. So these are things that uh, you know most folks don't realize that we do. Uh, but uh, mm -hmm. you know, I I used to have a little conversation with my wife who was an RN at the time. Uh, about the, how can you do this? So where are you taking all this stuff? I said, well, that's, when I go there, I'm, you know, you don't have enough doctors to do what I do. And that's why they're training us. And, uh, and so that's it. I imagine that had to be pretty rewarding um, in a war zone, being the one that's doing so much fixing and repairing and healing. Well, it, it was, and uh, and you got very close to the people, uh, as the uh, we used to, as a, as boxy as the doctor in Vietnamese. Uh, you know, they give you a little these little bracelets, and they have these uh, they have these ceremonies, and a little brass bracelet, and uh, I occasionally will will still put one on, but I had about fifteen of them I used to wear around. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. I would go around the villages every evening and uh, talk, talk to the families, things like this, kids, 
because there was a lot of respect for the for the doctor. You know, I was a little different. I was a little different from the other guys because I'm the guy that's that they see when they uh, when they get sick, they get injured, and so it wasn't that they wasn't that they were uh, didn't like uh, or didn't respect the the other guys on the team. But the, but the, the medic was always, uh, regardless of where it is, it's always a little different, you know. For sure. They always taking, they always teach the, the doc a little a little different than they do the other guys. How long were you in Vietnam? I was there uh, actually six months. We had six. There were six month tours in. Now, a little different than the the year. I wouldn't. I wasn't in a camp. Mm. I moved into an area by helicopter, cleared out an area, and we built the camp. Huh. And we stayed there. Anytime you walked outside of the camp, you were in hostile territory. And you were partnered with South Vietnamese Army, or was no, it just I, an organic SF team making the camp? Well, no, we had a. We had a, uh, I was with the, I was in the Central Highlands in the mountain, Central Highlands with the, uh, we had two companies of mountain yards. Ah. The, uh, Aborigines. Mountain yards? Mountain yard. And uh, they were, they were little people that looked like me. Only had straight black hair. And uh, they had been fighting with the French. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, most of your conventional units that were in Vietnam were not with uh, uh, involved with the Mountain Yard. Uh, but most of the Special Forces units were uh, were involved of them, especially in the, in the in, in, in the two core in the Central Highlands, which was where where I was, and uh, they were. Uh, uh, we also had a little. Uh, we had a race war. We had a race problem with them and the and regular Vietnamese also. Really. Yes. And so that was a, that was part of your your our conflict. I said we had. Three companies. We had two companies of mountain yards and one company of Vietnamese. And uh, our Vietnamese uh, were really a um, did not get along with the mountain yards. We had a Vietnamese camp commander and a mountain yard assistant camp commander. Hmm. But uh, they, there was sort of a, it was segregation in Vietnam, the same as I experienced here in the United States. Was it the Montagnards that were considered the, the lesser or the second class? Is that yes. the order? Okay. That was the, that was the order. Now they didn't treat the Vietnamese did not treat me any different than the other members of my team. You were an American. I was in an American. The story. In the story. 
but they treated the mound yards different. Now, I had a problem with that because of my experience here in the United States. And so uh, uh, it was difficult for me at times, although I, uh, you know, I understand what was going on, but there were, there were, there were times when I, I intervened. Now, there were times when we had to go to, uh, say, Quinyang, uh, which was a, uh, a small town, uh, quite a ways from where we were. And we had to go there by, uh, we had to walk for uh, 16 kilometers just to get to uh, Highway 1 to where we could put them on trucks and get convoy to Quinyang. And then, which was the city. When we, before we got arrived in the city, we had to take all the weapons from our troops before we let them go into town. Wow. Because if we didn't do that, we would have shootouts and killings, knifings. So when you say race war, you don't mean uh, they didn't get along well, you mean violence killing each other. Oh, they would. Oh, they would kill each other. Wow, it's yeah. isn't it? You know, Vietnam's one of those things. I'm just so ignorant of. I feel like I know somewhat, and then I just—it's a fraction in reality. And like, um, I guess how I sort of understand it is, well, for one, it's a very old country, like thousands of years old. And so, it you know, think about a tribal society that's thousands of years old. It's that's like Afghanistan in a way. And the ethnic clashes were extreme and, and just well-rooted in their society. And I guess they had warrior classes and, and things like that that have known to be sort of the rebels and the mountain people. I guess a lot of societies have that, right? Like the, the downtrodden that sort of live up in the, the crappy areas, the non-fertile regions, you know, they get relegated. It's almost like the Scottish... Scots got the that land and everything just like they got the crappy land here in the United States and they are known for this sort of fighting attitude. I think Vietnam is like that from some of the stuff that I've read. Well, it, it, a little bit, um, somewhat is like that. Uh, although um, the 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 Maunyars were more, they were more farmers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they didn't invade the cities uh, and things like this where there was where you have a racial problem within a say in Saigon or, or Quinyang or one of these other towns. It was it was how they were treated when they came into those areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, that's where the problem lies. Uh, so know, were, they, I was gonna ask were there villages left alone then generally? And then it was, was, you said the segregation. So the Monyars were living in a certain region and that the Vietnamese people were not necessarily interacting with. It's just when the Monyars would go to the bigger cities. Yeah. Well, because not not all Vietnamese live in the the big towns. They they live uh, in many times close with it and they interacted with the Monyars. It's when they got to the metropolitan areas is when they had the problems. Mm. Okay, interesting. And we had a, like, in my camp, we had a walkout. Two companies of Vietnam yards walked out of the camp 
And we almost had an uprising there. But because my, my, my team leader, who was African-American at the time, uh, and the assistant camp commander, uh, along with the camp commander who was Vietnamese, uh, worked it out. And, uh, but the uh, Vietnamese camp commander, it was re removed. Mm. And uh, the uh, mountain yard commander uh, was left in charge. And after that, they acquiesced and things, things were back to normal. They how came you, back. How did you balance that where there's, there's a piece of that type of warfare where you say this is their culture and we're just here to advise and help them move the ball forward? You're watching this segregation saying it's wrong. I know it's wrong. How can we change this or fix this? How do you figure out where that line is? Like, what's what's what was your responsibility to alter that versus figure out a way to operate within it? Well, it it was uh, it's sort of a it, it wasn't something that I personally had to, to to get involved with. Most of this was done through through my team leader and and his communicating with the uh, the two commanders, the the mountain yard. And the Vietnamese commanders. Mm -hmm. uh, once you got the leaders together and guiding them to got them to agree to certain things, uh, myself and the other members of my team, you know, we continued our our jobs uh, and basically had the uh, uh, the mountain yards working with us, never uh, uh, having any, an issue, uh, even with the, the Vietnamese that were there. Uh, as long as we were there involved and leading uh, in some capacity, there was never any problem. It was only when there was, uh, say, a Vietnamese who assumed that he was going to be in charge. Sure. But other than that, uh, we got along well, and they, they did well themselves. When you came back from Vietnam, you, you, you talked about how during the train-up, there were so many people doing the training that had been to Vietnam. Did you do any of that, kind of passing along some of this knowledge when you came home, or what was that process no, like? No, uh, I, I didn't get a chance to do that because, you know, as, as an SF medic, there's always a need. Uh, you come back and see... Uh, you, you could be deployed again. You know, I got back and uh, uh, the next thing I know, I got deployed to uh, Dominican Republic. Uh, I did, quick, did you know that you wanted to stay in the army? Like, I do have a question when you, before you hit Dominican Republic, when you came back from, you had the Vietnam experience, you deployed combat, everything there, they, all that experience. When your mindset coming home, I mean, you, I'm sure you had term left in your commitment, but what was your kind of mentality, hey, Army-wise? I'm going to keep doing the SF thing? Or No, at that time, I was still uh, committed to, uh, to the military. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a matter of fact, I think I, I re-enlisted. I know I did. Uh, uh, I think I re-enlisted while I was in the uh, uh, Okinawa and the first group. 
uh, for another three or four years, I think. I see. And um, so, uh, uh, yeah, I re-enlisted. And I, at, at that time, I, you know, when I was in Vietnam, they offered us, a bunch of us, commissions. Ah. Uh, we interviewed for a commission. And uh, I, I think about, there were about probably 15, because I, like we said, there were, this was the first, we had no junior officers with any combat experience. They were mm. all in SF. Mm. Uh, everybody in Special Forces qualifies for OCS uh, because that's part of the selection process. The requirements were the same. Oh, okay. And so uh, I asked him, uh, I said, well, am I coming back to Special Forces? No, you're going to the 82nd Airborne or, or the 101st. And I said, thank you, but no thank you. As most of the guys did. Yeah. We had they, they, uh, a couple of guys went. went, went uh, uh, but later on, uh, uh, we had, we had, we did get a few guys to go and to OCS uh, and come back to, to Special Forces. Now, uh, we didn't have second lieutenants in SF. Sure. I don't think they have many today either. Uh, mm -hmm. You had to, um, um, unless you were a former enlisted man, uh, say, for instance, you were sergeant and you went to OCS and you, you could come back. Oh, okay. Uh, to a team. As an XO, but you could not. Uh, you could not. We didn't take second lieutenants right out of West Point or Makes ROTC sense, yeah. or somewhere. Sure. You know. Sure. And so that's. Um, but anyway, we had uh, 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 many guys did not. Nobody wanted to go. Uh, years later on, I I I was going to. Tried to get a warrant commission and actually got accepted for a warrant commission in the CID Corps. Hmm. Interesting. But, uh, but the Special Warfare Center had other plans. And so they put me on another deployment. But going back to uh, Dominican Republic, uh, yeah, they had a, uh, I went on a split team with uh, five Mexican or Cuban guys. Um, collecting intelligence in the Dominican Republic. I ran a doctor's office down here. Huh. That's unique. And so those are the kinds of things that <laughs> you asked about uh, medics. You know, you you be on a team and there's always a need because most of the guys in SF were, were staying with the exception of medics. Hmm. So they were getting out, going to med school or whatever. And so uh, I went to the Dominican Republic there and did that deployment and then uh, came back and decided I was going to get a warrant commission. And I got uh, deployed again, this time to Thailand. We had, we had troops along the Thai-Laotian border. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, sure. yeah. Yeah. I had one in operation in Cambodia and Laos. And um, I told them I would look, I only had six months on that enlistment. And so they said, well, let me call Special Warfare Center. Please stand by. We'll call you back in about five minutes. Five minutes later, I got a call. Says, yeah, so if he has over 30 days to do, four years of service, mission takes priority and gives commission when he gets back. So they sent me. Should mission takes in. priority. Yeah, and so uh, six months later, I said goodbye. <laughs> was the was Dominican a six month or two? No, no, the Dominican was only, uh, uh, that was only for uh, two or three months. Yeah. That got, uh, they, they washed that right quick down there, and we came home. What was the Thailand Laos gig? Uh, well, that was, that, was a, that, was a, that was a classified assignment down there, mm. you know, uh, when, there, uh, when, we went, when we went there. Uh, most folks don't even, they think about, uh, everybody was thinking about Vietnam. I didn't realize we had other people, we had troops in other places in harm's way as we do today. Sure, sure. Yeah. Or they only think about Afghanistan or Iraq, but we got people in South America. Oh yeah. That that that's down there, and that's on the hostile fire also. Mm -hmm. You know, we always have guys. SF always has guys somewhere around the world. That is, that's what I wonder as compared to like today. I have the impression, but I don't know, right? But like, I feel like, yeah, the guys in Iraq and Afghanistan, they, you know, you're living out, you know, with, you're living outside the wire essentially, but at the same time, have, they have a lot of resources at their disposal with, they're like kind of top priority with the radio and all these different assets. But like to a, a team in South America doing something, I have no idea what that's like. Uh, because all the assets are in country already when you're in Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, you're surrounded by conventional army people. How did you feel when you were in Vietnam, when there wasn't big army there? I mean, did you feel well-resourced or were you just feel like you're in the wild west? Well, you know, you didn't, uh, uh, you couldn't compare it just what you have today uh, with them because you had to accept what, what, what was, what was available to you, mm -hmm. and you had to uh, make do. You know uh, the resources that we have today that was unheard of. Of um, yeah. uh, you know the you asked about uh, how long would it take to evacuate somebody out there. You know the resources today is a lot different from it was then. You know, mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, uh, we had nothing to compare with. We just had to operate with what we had. And that's what you, that was, that was a good thing about that I learned in Special Forces. You learned uh, to make do with whatever you had. Mm -hmm. you, you couldn't, uh, if you didn't have it, you'd, you would scheme, steal, whatever it took to get the equipment or get the job done. And so uh, you had to make your own resources. And, I like it. Uh, and, yeah. that's, and that's what makes that's what makes them good. 
you know, it's, uh, there's, there's no school solution. A lot of it's right. trial and error and, uh, and what you have, uh, experienced based on the experiences you and your, your teammates are, have, have had. Not afraid to give it a shot. You know, no. I think that's my, uh, I think that's my favorite memories of deployment is we lived in like this mud hut. Press and I both did like this mud uh, Pueblo style building that we constantly improved though, to where by the time we left, it had like, you know, generators and, and satellites on top, but we were figuring it out the whole time. You know, a guy that was a little bit older was a, uh, like a truck driver in the past. And so he knew how to operate we would acquire machinery or people would leave machinery and he would, we would kind of acquire it and he'd be able to use it and build things. And like, I had guys that, cause the recession were like construction workers before they enlisted. And so they, you know, they were handy and carpenters and like, everybody's like just trying to figure it out. I mean, to me, that's the, those are the main memories. It's not necessarily the missions and all that stuff. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, and that's what we did, you know, and that's the kind of guys that you want uh, because it's not always the school solution to, about anything. You've got to, mm -hmm. you know, you've got to uh, have a little ingenuity uh, to get things done. And well, Henry, so, uh, yeah. I was gonna say, as we start to wrap up here, is there anything we didn't ask about that we should have? Uh, no, you, you know, the, of course, you 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 read the article in the, the BFW magazine, and we'll put that link in the description so folks can check it out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, most of that, uh, my 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 Secret Service experience, you know that that came after you know, with, uh, you know I was in, really in, engaged with the, in the Civil Rights Movement later on, right after I got out, riding squad car going to school full time. And that's, because yeah, you got out in what year and you got out at Memphis, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I got out in 1970, no, 1967. How did that feel to be a war combat veteran, African-American coming home, you know, everything going on in the country? Again, for someone who hasn't lived it myself to just read about whatever information they put in the textbooks, I just couldn't imagine, you know, you lived it firsthand experience and already worldly traveled and experienced prior to it. You weren't just some 17, not that it matters if you're a 17 year old kid, because that's still firsthand real experience, but you had a different perspective. I would have to imagine. Well, it, I, I did have a different perspective and, uh, uh, you know, I was not one to sit back and not say anything. Uh, I was, I was, I was, a, I was a deputy sheriff. I worked out at the at the police, the Memphis Police Academy, every day. So I knew a lot of policemen. I was going to Memphis State University uh, full time, taking 20, 21 hours a semester, because I my my goal was to I needed to get get a degree, so I could be, be, become a federal agent, and I needed to do it as, as fast as I could. And so um, uh, during the assassination of Dr. King, uh, I was riding, or I've been riding squad cars. As a matter of fact, 
high road into Lorraine Motel right after he was shot. And uh, then uh, right after that, that's when all hell broke loose. And uh, we were getting sniper fire all over the cities. There were, uh, we had to escort fire trucks because they were getting sniped at. And, uh, but here's where my combat experience came in is that the people that I was riding with, they were so afraid because of being shot at. Yeah. Well, I was, you know, I didn't want to be shot, but I was a little more aware of what, how to act. Yeah. And so sure. forth. when I see guys hiding in a squad car. And so, uh, uh, but anyway, I, there were situations where uh, police abuse a few people and uh, I did, initially didn't say anything. I was waiting on a, on a commander to, to make, uh, to take care of the situation and he didn't say anything. So that from, from that point on, I, I intervened and, and, and took charge. And, uh, and the guys uh, had a few racial slurs about me, but they never said anything to me about it because they called me, they called me super, called me super nigger. And, uh, and I says, hey, I can't help cause I'm good. And that diffused the situation. And uh, after that, I had never had any problem. Uh, the guys I worked with, I mean, I was, I was working on what we call, you call squat teams now, but there were, we had four men cars, four cars in a, in a tech unit. I was the only, I was the only black guy. Mm. So you can recognize that situation. Yeah. And mm -hmm. when I just took charge, nobody said anything. They just, they just stood there and looked. Now, that was because of my intestinal fortitude and training that I'd had previously sure. in the military. And so, um, uh, and, that, and that's the way it was. And, and, and many of those guys, those officers that I worked with, longtime friends even today. And so, uh, anyway, I got my degree and... Uh, uh, became a Secret Service agent. And uh, the rest of the history, you know, I've I, I worked uh, probably four, four presidents, but I was at the White House with Presidents Ford and Carter, but I've worked Reagan, Bush, uh, Reagan and Bush, Ford, I've raised all kinds of foreign dignitaries, dignitaries and heads of foreign governments. I worked Dr. Kissinger, Secretary of Treasury Simon, and plus uh, Pope Paul. All right. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. When he, when he came to came to the state, yeah, I was with him for a while on a on a protective detail with him. I imagine you spent time at Camp David then. Yes, I did. Yeah. I spent time at David uh, in, in, the, in the nice summer days and then the freezing days up there. 
Because that's in the, that's up there in the Catoctin Mountains. Where I told you I was at Fort Ritchie, Maryland. Mm-hmm. Well, they're in the same area. Gotcha. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that until years later. Uh, is it is it serene there? Is it peaceful area? Yeah. Yeah, it is very serene, very peaceful. Matter of fact, I'd be I'm the, if I was the president, I'd probably be there most days. Yeah, <laughs> sure. He has a he has a three or four whole golf course right there. So you walk outside and practice your chip and putting. Hmm, that doesn't sound too bad. So it's 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 nice. Yeah, it's it's nice. Uh, so it was, you know, that, uh, uh, then I was back in the field office. I, you know, I left, after I left uh, Washington, I was back in the field office uh, working criminal work. Um, you know, most folks just think of Secret Service as protection of the president. Sure. But Secret Service is also involved in uh, anything that has to do with U.S. securities, uh, money, okay. counterfeit money counterfeit food stamp, postage stamps, uh, electronic funds transfers, all these things uh, involve money, uh, comes on the Secret Service. I wonder, uh, if they're, I wonder if they're big time used today at the cryptocurrency stuff. I, I wonder it would probably be them, wouldn't it? Well, if, 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 it's, if it's counterfeit and stuff like this, now, uh, I don't know what exactly what any what the new financial uh, regulations and laws are regarding the crypto stuff today sure. is, uh, you know, I'm still associated with the the, uh, the Secret Service Agents Association, and I attend all their their, their conferences and mm-hmm. uh, regional and national conferences, as I do with the uh, Special Forces. Do you? That's cool. Uh, yeah, uh, I was at I was in Las Vegas a few. Few months ago, uh, and had a great time. That would guys I served with in, in Vietnam would, uh, you know, it's always good to see old teammates. Love and that. I, I encourage any any veteran, uh, you know, uh, to at least attend one, and decide for yourself uh, if you're going to go to others. Uh, I always go to, when it's at Bragg. The National Space Force Committee. I always go there, mm-hmm. and uh, and, the, and a lot of the other places. I always go to the uh, Secret Service National Conferences. Things there, my wife and I, and uh, still we maintain close relationships. And I see the guys and uh, and the gals in the Secret Service, and uh, we have a great time, reminisce, and. Uh, that's it. Those are I some could, impressive groups to stay in touch with and groups of good people. Um, yeah. To keep oh, up yeah. With. yeah. 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 And it, I mean, it's, I couldn't agree more because it's like, it's, there's so many different uh, positive effects that come out of it because number one, staying in touch with your sort of peer group, your age group, yep. but then I'm sure, you know, for those, the younger guys to be able to talk to you is like, you're like the grandfather of special forces. I mean, you are, you, you've lived it and done it. And it's just to be able to hang out with people like that. And I'm sure you get value off the, 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 the young blood doing it today, you know? Oh, yeah. 
Absolutely, I, because I like to, I like to see the change. Uh, uh, I like to hear what they're doing, and uh, uh, you know, sometimes place myself in that position. There we go. Uh, yeah. Well, we st we started it off by saying, um, I think Brian introduced you, sir, as as you know, four lives of experience so far, and now I'm going to disagree. It's like six or seven. That's an incredible um, life you've already lived, and. Just want to say thank you so much for everything you've done, everything you continue to do, um, and thanks for taking the time to talk to us for a little bit today. Well, I, I thank you and uh, both you guys for for uh, this this kind of uh, opportunity to to uh, really uh, uh, share my experiences with with with, with people. Uh, you know. It's not always about uh, blood and glory and uh, shoot 'em ups and stuff, um, right. but but to, to get the human interest side of of what happens and what you've experienced and and you know we're not talking about firefights and all this other stuff. I mean, sure, we're all engaged in that, but we're we're talking about the subtle things that we did, uh, the experiences that we that we have we've had and that's uh, that's that's a good that's a good thing and that's really what I what I enjoy uh, in, in watching these these podcasts of other guys as a situation you know uh, you know I'm not a big tough guy but I have skills that I've acquired over years you know um, you don't brag about uh, what I did during this situation or, or that situation like that um, I have those and why I'm not you know I I teach my kids and grandkids when necessary um, but that's something that uh, uh, it's it's not something that I, to me a, a platform like this to, that we need to go into. This, so this was a great, great, a great forum uh, to share a lot of information. And uh, I hope that for those who get a chance to see it and hear it, uh, would have enjoyed it themselves. We well, certainly will. And Henry, what I'd like to say, you know, before we wrap up is, because, you know, I believe what you did, it's the embodiment of that American flag. When you were overseas helping people, no matter who they were, I mean, that's how I grew up to believe the American flag to be. And then coming home and fighting that same injustice and bull crap in your local community. You know, to me, that's what it's all about. And so it's, it's, it's inspiring. It's motivating. And, um, you know, we need people like you so we can hear these stories and know that anybody can do it. Right. And um, just to stand up for to do what's right. It's not easy, but you embody that. Well, thank you. All right, sir. We'll, uh, we'll talk soon here. Okay, take care. Hey, if you've got an extra 16 seconds, it would really mean a lot to me if you left a review for War Stories. I read every single one of those, and we'll do our best in coming episodes to maybe shout some of those out just as a way of saying thank you for taking the time. But either way, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.